Hey everyone, welcome back to Innovation Included by First Founders Inc. Thank you again for listening to our new podcast. Before we jump into today's content, I wanted to remind you that we have applications open right now for our new Inclusive Startup Accelerator, which operates from October 24th through December 5th of 2020. So this is a six week startup accelerator and participants are going to gain automatic entry to a $10,000 pitch competition happening in January of next year. So quick reminder that applications are due by October 16th at midnight. So please get your applications in, share the opportunity with others. We want to do things bigger and better than we have done in the past. So we need your help to spread the word and we can't wait to review your applications. Thank you. Hey, Denisha. Can you hear me? No, not yet. Maybe. Yes, you can hear me. Okay. Take your time. No, do what you got to do. You're still muted right now, though. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Totally fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. New York is getting ready to shut everything down in one hour. So. Ah, uh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. I thought it. I thought it. <laughs> already are you in the office now or i am not i am at home in my apartment um i've actually been here for like the last week and a half oh, so wow. i feel like i'm fully acclimated to work from home life but gotcha. still it's different when you can't just go to a coffee shop now yes it is very different we're all adjusting yes thank you for taking the time um out of this uh chaotic time of to join course. our cohort everybody is has been really looking forward to hearing from you, meeting you. Um, we're in week four of the cohort. Awesome. And yeah, we got a really great dynamic group of innovators and problem solvers. Um, so yeah, so I would just like to, I guess, so I'll give a brief introduction of you. And then if you want to kind of take it from there. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, everyone, I would like to formally introduce you to Denisha Kulor. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yes, you are. Kulor. Kulor, yeah. Kulor, yes. Kulor. <laughs> Which one? Well, it's okay. So, funny secret. It's uh, I'm first generation Ghanaian. So, my dad's convinced that we pronounce it wrong either way. So, <laughs> any interpretations are, are good. Yeah. But I, I say Kulor. Okay. All right, Denisha Kulor. Mm -hmm. um, awesome. So yes, uh, previously a, a startup founder. Uh, I'm sure you're, you might still be working on something in the background. Um, <laughs> but so Denisha has startup experience, and she currently works at Grasshopper Bank um, in early stage tech. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so we're gonna hear a little bit about Denisha's story, sort of what she's worked on in the past, what she's doing now at Grasshopper, and what Grasshopper Bank even is. And then hopefully you can just take some time to answer questions because our cohort yeah. a lot of just just entrepreneurial and tech related yeah. questions. Awesome. Cool. Well, hi everyone. Um, thank you so much, Gary, for for having me. I'm excited to be doing this and getting to learn more about yourselves and what you're building as well. Um, like he said, my name's Denisha. Um, and I cover early stage technology at Grasshopper Bank, which is a digital first venture bank. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I guess a little background on me. Uh, so 
I am first generation Ghanaian. I grew up in Connecticut um, and actually went to school for nursing. Hence Ghanaian, my parents wanted me to be a nurse. Um, and I basically, I mean, during the time in college, I knew I didn't want to be a nurse. I was super interested in technology and education. Um, and so I decided to build a startup called Pluck that helped colleges meet their enrollment goals as students applied for free. Uh, we wanted to help colleges that had declining enrollment, which primarily looked like liberal arts institutions, um, and help connect them to students that, because of marketing or brand awareness, they would have not otherwise had access to. Um, so I started that uh, right after I graduated high school, actually uh, did that through about my sophomore year of college. Um, during my sophomore year, we realized a few things that colleges had really long sales cycles um, and every sales cycle looked different. Something as if you guys are building in FinTech, we'll probably relate to soon. Um, and so we decided to basically think about what is another way we can enter this market, uh, position ourselves as domain experts or at least experts in some sense in the market. And so that led to the creation of AlmaFind, um, which came through us doing a national college band Snapchat. So every day we would have a different student at a different school just walk us through a day in their life using Snapchat. Um, and it kind of taught me a few things. One, with Pluck, that had uh, did a crowdfunding campaign and raised all this money to do a build out of a platform. Um, and I had way more attraction on Snapchat than I had on, um, on what we had originally built. And even though I was really excited about the traction, in hindsight, I was like, wow, I could have leveraged this money to do so many other things. And interestingly enough, uh, Snapchat actually served as a perfect platform to test what we needed to test, right? It was able to um, disseminate a bunch of content to a mass amount of people. People could continue to join. Uh, it empowered the one-to-one -one as well as a one-to-many relationship. Um, and so that was kind of my first experience in, okay, like you might have a vision, but the vision pivots, right? And I think being flexible with that uh, in order to accomplish the ultimate goal was really, really big. Um, and so did that um, and actually uh, landed on uh, a tweet uh, and it said, if you like tech startups and venture reach out. Um, and that was for my old job, which was at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so I joined the, I originally started on the venture capital relationship management team there. Um, the venture capital relationship management team naturally works really closely with the early stage team. And so I joined the early stage team after I graduated college, um, did that for about two years and then joined Grasshopper recently um, to help build the first digital commercial bank, um, specifically for startups and venture funds. Um, so I guess I'll tell you a little bit about Grasshopper and then my role there, um, as well as how I could probably be most helpful to you guys and then happy to take any questions. Um, so like I said, Grasshopper is a digital first venture bank. Uh, we've raised $131 million um, and have done that for a variety of reasons and from a lot of folks, but that includes T. Rowe Price, Endeavor, Golden Seeds. Um, and with Grasshopper, our goal is really to democratize access to banking. Um, and what that means for us is democratizing access to commercial banking. And, you know, during my time at SVB, of course, I got to work with a ton of founders, um, get to see companies from all angles. But it really was the first time that I understood intimately how a bank can 
I don't want to say make or break your company because a good company is going to do well regardless, but I think it could sink or swim your company, right? Like, I think you might be able to swim further and go further with the help of a good bank. And even if it's a really amazing company, there's things a bank could probably still do to help them, um, even if they are making revenue and are profitable. Um, so our CEO, Judith Irwin, she was on the founding team of Square One. Square One got acquired um, by PacWest. Um, and she wanted to build a bank that served all types of entrepreneurs. And so that's what we set out to do. We got our banking license. It's almost going to be a year now, a year in May. Um, it was the first time the OCC granted a license to a de novo bank since the financial crisis. Um, so that was an 18 month process, which I'm also happy to talk about the regulatory side of, uh, of FinTech as well. Um, and we've kind of just been rocking and rolling since. So being digital, our headquarters are in New York. We do consider ourselves kind of long New York and really committed to that tech ecosystem. Um, but a lot of my work is focused on new market development. And so I've been spending time in Atlanta, um, DC. I was planning to go to Miami before the crisis, um, but really thinking about where are communities and places that are underserved. Um, and I mean, there's still great entrepreneurs, there's still a lot going on, but I think that the futures that people are going to build, and they, I mean, they are doing it, they're gonna build tech companies anywhere um, and not fully using the venture model, which in some ways is broken. And so how do we be additive to a company's uh, capital stack uh, thinking about leveraging debt to preserve equity um, and a host of other things. How, do, how are we helpful to that? I think a lot of my job, um, I look at myself as like the VC platform type role for my clients and the companies that we work with beyond just being our clients and our partners. How can we leverage our banking expertise and then our network effect to help a company go further? Um, so I spend a lot of my time uh, connecting founders to investors. We also have a venture capital and private equity practice. And so it's been a really nice entry point to uh, connect uh, the emerging managers that we're working with in that practice to deal flow, um, pitch practice, uh, strategy, helping them hire, um, really anything that gets a company more money in the bank, right? Because that's mutually beneficial to us. Um, while also, of course, I mean, doing some bank, bank stuff, I guess we could call it. Um, but, but yeah, that's really how uh, I spend a ton of my time and kind of why I, why I joined Grasshopper, that mission. Um, and then when I think about, I guess, the areas I'm most interested in. So I'm interested in FinTech, which is of course why I'm here with you guys now. Um, also really interested about the intersection of music and technology. I actually write a blog, a weekly blog on that called Stan um, that explores the fan artist relationship. Um, and then I'm interested in a host of things on the consumer and enterprise side, but most times um, it's less this specific sector and a lot of times why the founder chose to tackle the problem the way they did. Um, so feel free to honestly ask me anything. Um, if I haven't dealt with it firsthand, I'm happy to share. Um, I'm happy to share basically what I've seen in the market. Um, but I do see your question, Margie, about when you're connecting founders to investors, what qualities you look for in the founder to gauge their readiness. Um, so that's a really, really great question. And I think about it in a few ways. Um, so there's 
basically two ways in which founders interact with me for connections to investors. So one is them kind of being um, proactive, if you will, about Denisha, I saw that you're connected to this investor. Can you make an introduction? Um, and then the second way is maybe I'm talking to them or looking through their pitch deck and I proactively say, have you talked to X investor? Why or why not? So the first one's the one I'm going to touch on because I think that's the one that matters the most. If you, um, okay, so if you're a company and you're at the seed stage and you ask me for an, uh, an intro to Tribeca Venture Partners, I'm going to look at you a little crazy, right? Because Tribeca invests at the Series A. So the biggest thing I'm trying to gauge is one, did the founder do their homework? Um, so that's the first step. And that's like, okay, that's in my, in my opinion, almost bare minimum. Um, the second though, and this is really when you see what takes founders to the next level is the best founders, they will have the firm that they want to be introduced to, the partner that they want to be introduced to. And this is key, right? If they have a specific partner that has a thesis on the space and they think will be most helpful to them and their company for a variety of reasons. Um, companies that they deem are um, complementary or maybe specific companies that they might perceive as competitive. Um, and then they have a thesis on how the firm and the partner can help them grow their business. And they only have companies on their list that they already know that they're a fit for. This is key. Because if I then feel, and I, I mean, we're all happy to, and I'm gonna be nice about it, but in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, so you didn't do your research. You didn't look through um, to, to really see if this founder is a good fit for you. So the best thing I would recommend is Jenny Fielding of Techstars. She has an investor, uh, investor pipeline template, and it breaks down in a template form how you should uh, categorize and qualify your investors. Um, and so what ends up happening is I'll have founders that'll just send me that list. And then they'll also say, like, fill in if you think you can introduce me to them. And so that's super helpful because I can say, oh, hey, um, hey, uh, we'll use one of my, Yvonne at New Age Capital, like, ex-founder knows that you built a, uh, a peer-to-peer um, savings company before and really feels like your expertise would be helpful in this. They're more one, more likely to take the meeting and quicker. Two, they know you've done your, their research on them. So you're gonna have a more informed conversation about why they make sense. Um, and three, it's just like flattery, right? They're like, oh, you know what I do? Um, and that flatters them. So I'd say that's the really big thing. Um, and then the second one, I'm not gonna touch on as much because most times if I'm recommending an investor to you, I've already done that qualification um, because I'm not also going to, on the flip side, make a bad referral to an investor that's not going to be helpful to them and potentially impact my relationship with them. Sorry, I'm outside. That was that was great. Um, and then one follow-up, I think the concept of um, a partner in this sense yeah. is slightly new to me. So you can't, can you talk more about the role that the partner plays and like how we would go about qualifying yeah. who that yeah. partner is to bring up in the conversation. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. So when I had my startup and uh, from uh, what you'll see is attorneys, they're a great entry point um, to people uh, for companies that aren't necessarily fully in the space. Um, I, I think about it in two ways. So when I had plucked, uh, I had a lawyer, he like knew about startups, knew how to get us incorporated. 
Um, but the advice that he gave was where are you personally banking and that's where you should bank um, because that's easier you'll have all your accounts consolidated and what i quickly realized is that the value in the partner is not the partner actually doing the work right like to me early stage banking is commoditized you can hold your money anywhere um, it's more so in what they can do for you beyond the services they provide as a partner so if i'm a founder and i work with cooley Cooley not only banks, or not only uh, does the legal work for a ton of startups, but they do it for the venture firms too, right? So they can pick up the phone and say, hey, we really have this interesting company, like take this meeting. Uh, they have a ton of dinners and other things that can put you in the room that you otherwise might not have been in front of. Um, and th that's the same for how we think about things on the banking side. Like not only in my experience as a banker have I been able to introduce companies to maybe their first pre-seed check or their first seed check, but I've also been able to introduce them to their first customers. Um, I like to think of ourselves as a, like we're, we're neutral, I'm Switzerland, right? So I can be the connector um, between all the parties that make sense for you uh, as a founder, but I'd say the biggest value and when you're evaluating partners, something to really think about is what will their ability be to back channel for you? Um, and so I do a ton of back channeling. It's probably the good 40% of my job that people don't allude to uh, when I take the job, but that, that's definitely part of it. And that looks like, okay, like you apply to a Y Combinator and ERA, and I have a relationship with the partner there, and maybe you didn't get in, but this is why, right? It, it looks like helping you understand your feedback loops to make sure that they're actually providing you with actual feedback because so much of the problem especially for underrepresented founders is the feedback loops that you get aren't accurate and it causes you to iterate on your business when you might not necessarily need to iterate on it um so i'd say that's a really big that's a really big factor and that's something you should evaluate for like how much can you back channel to get the information that you need um leverage that in, as strategy for your business like you might show me your investor pipeline and I'll say, oh, X firm, they're raising capital right now. They have no capital to deploy. Take, don't take that meeting because they can't invest in you right now. Um, and that saves you time to take another meeting in which they can. Um, so I think that, you know, for every partner that says they're in this space, like they need to show you uh, um, and they need to be able to leverage their uh, connectivity in the space to help you, one, in ways that they can't fully state through back channeling, and then two, to truly make introductions that will move the needle for you. Oh, I'll just share the link. I don't know if that'll, let me see if I can do that. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, this is, this has been great. Thank you, Denisha. So if anybody else has any questions, feel free to uh, jump in. Ivan, it looks like you, you maybe have a question. Nope. It's all good. If not, I thought, I thought, <laughs> my bad, my bad. Um, okay. So I mean, gonna... I have, I have a list of them. Go, go, go but... for it. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to commandeer the conversation. Um, so are you also looking at, sorry, I'll start over. One of the things I'm also really um, trying to understand is what the requirements are for a financial services yeah. platform. 
Yeah. Um, and I haven't been able to really get like the depth of answer that I'm looking for. So yeah. Do you have a- and just to clarify, is it like a partnership side, like partnering with a financial services platform or like uh, holding your deposits at a tech bank, a bank that serves technology? Oh, I'm actually thinking, okay, so maybe this is the wrong. I was actually thinking um, about what I would be required to produce for yeah. you in order for you to know like that I'm a, as, that I'm in a position as a founder to mm-hmm. sort of um, be worth your time to introduce me yeah. to investors. Yeah, that, so that's a great question. So one I'll say, of course, I think, uh, and I'll say this with a caveat, but any bank, right, they're gonna pay more attention to their clients just by like virtue. Um, but, but what I'll say beyond that is, and I've talked to a ton of um, prospective clients or people that have become clients after, and there was always this like gap on like, Nisha, I love working with you. Or I love talking to you. Um, but I held off on being a client because I didn't want you to think the, um, that my like bank account balance reflected my seriousness. And I would say, actually, don't think about that as all, at all. Um, a, a trick that you'll find with the white male founders, if, if we're being honest, is they'll open an account and it'll have zero dollars for like years. But they're just so confident in what they're building and the ability um, that that doesn't matter to them, right? So uh, what we find often enough, and this is why we're able to have such a great relationship with investors, is that a bank account is a great inception point to building a business. So it gives us really good uh, data around who's building a business, right? So I might know that someone really C-suite at Apple is going to leave Apple soon to build a business because he opened a bank account, a business bank account. Um, So I would not in any way uh, correlate like balance or things like that. Uh, What I will say though is it does just out of sheer bandwidth uh, sometimes depend on the founder to leverage and get those resources. Because as much as we say, and this is something we're working on, but I'll just give you an example from when I was at SVB in New York. Uh, So I was in the New York uh, office uh, covering early stage and we had a thousand clients, right? And so there were basically three of us uh, working with those clients on a day-to-day, but it's all hands on deck, right? And so that means that even if I'm being, and I'm probably being optimistic here to think that I can serve 10% of them, that's 100 people. That means 900 people are not getting that value add from me. They're not getting intros to investors. They're not getting things that are in the value prop. And so it becomes a recency bias. Like if I go to an event on, you know, on Thursday and I run into you, Margie, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I know you have an email in my inbox. Like, tomorrow, I remember seeing you. That becomes top of mind. Um, a recency bias very quickly develops, um, for better or for worse. And I think every bank or partner, whoever you talk to, will say they're actively working to uh, dismay that recency bias. But it's just the, it's just the game. Yeah. <coughs> Can you? I have a question now, sorry. Yeah. So um, what would be the best way to find the best partner to partner up with you between your company? I mean, yeah. I, had, um, I had a partner before, actually two partners, but they both left mm-hmm. over um, 
I'm to pursue other things that didn't match the way I was running the business and where I wanted to go. So yeah. I had to make a consecutive decision of just being like uh, the solo guy and just take care of everything. But yeah. uh, I feel like I got to the point where it's like I did everything that I could to get it to where it needs to be. But now I need the people that are, that are required to get it to the next level. Yeah. So I think uh, co-founders is a tricky one, right? Because it's such a, it's such a deep relationship uh, that requires so much of people over an amount of time that you don't really get to vet. Um, and people make the statement about uh, investors. Uh, my old coworker always used to kind of make the statement that people are, uh, you're, the average marriage in the United States is like seven or eight years, and you're gonna be with your investors for 10 to 11. Um, and I think the same is true of co-founders, right? Like those are people that at least there's an expectation to ride the ups and downs of the business. But the reality is not everyone is built for startups um, and that's okay uh, for, for a host of reasons. I'd say my biggest thing in evaluating uh, co-founders or potential partners on the business is one, what their motivation is uh, because I mean, okay, in, it's America, people are capitalists, like that's fine. But I actually think that if people want to like become rich or whatever, like if your goal is to make like $10 million in five years, there's a whole lot of ways you can do it that's probably easier and less risky than a startup, right? You can invest, get a high paying job. Like there's so many other ways you can do it. So I'd one, evaluate for how passionate they are about the problem. Um, I secondly then evaluate what skills uh, that they bring and whether they're complementary to yours. Because to be honest, if you're dealing with a partner that has the same skill set as you, you're going to have, um, you're going to have a little bit of conflict, which is natural, but it's just going to come up in the sense of the things you guys are both driving towards are the same. So there could be a perception of whether what success looks like. Um, so that's another thing. And, and then third, I'd uh, also evaluate how you structure the relationship to then get to the point. I mean, I've seen a ton of co-founders and partners that have started off in a partnership that looks like um, them doing a pro by project basis, them keeping their full-time job contingent on funding. Um, I, I've seen a ton of that, uh, but I do, I, I do think that that's okay. Um, as long as, like I said, you gauge their passion to solve the problem, because what you don't want is people that are in love with the product um, and what the product is, and they're so tied to the product that as you get more information, as you learn and as you grow, that their passion for the product doesn't shift into passion for the problem. Um, because, I mean, you're going to be iterating, you're going to be moving quickly. And I think that the, as my other old coworker said, adaptability quotient works really well for people who are in love with the problem, but not for people who are in love with the product. I feel like I need you to scream that from the mountaintops in Seattle here, um, <laughs> because I feel like I work at a startup that's about five years old, and yeah. I feel like we've hired people who are in love with the product, not the problem. Yeah. And I look like the bad person by calling out the fact that the product and the advice we're getting from investors is deviating yes. from the solve for the problem. Exactly. Um, and it seems like that's such a common thing. And like we as a company, I think, have partnered with, um, and this isn't the company I'm trying to found. It's just where I'm working. Yeah. But 
it's like that behavior of misidentifying who needs to be brought on board feels like it, uh, I don't want to say infects because that feels very poorly, poor word choice right now, but it impacts like all levels of the business. So I I appreciate hearing you say that. I feel like more people need to hear it. I agree. I agree. It really, it's, it's, it's a problem. It's a, and then it affects the culture of the team, how people respond to changes and kind of the morale overall. Hello. Hi, Hi. my my name is Abu. Um, So my first question was going to be exactly what Ivan's was. Um, And my follow-up is, could you kind of, or request, I should say, could you um, give an example of of what you just talked about in terms of building a team based on uh, your own experience since you've been on a founding team previously? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll talk about building a team, I guess, from two angles. So uh, I'm always the person that becomes the middle of founder breakups, right? Because the first thing they all try and do is take each other off the bank account. Um, so I've seen a lot, a lot of founder breakups. And then I will say, I guess on the on the team side is, um, especially in the earliest days of a startup, it's so personal, right? Like it, it's so personal in a way that I think people don't talk about enough. Um, And it requires a lot of um, really, I think, getting to know people as a person um, and and kind of leveraging that to understand if not only them as a person, but also what they bring to the table makes sense for your startup. And I guess I'll give you an example from my old founder days. And uh, I'm very jealous of you all because I want to be a founder again soon um, and how I think about it in, in the future. Um, and so like, like I said, being like first generation Ghanaian, I was like, okay, if I want to build a startup again and it's going to be remote, like I think I get the same affordances a like rich person here might get in Ghana. So let me just move to Ghana for six months or a year to like get my, get my startup off the ground, right? And so I, I think about it in the sense that um, you have to be okay that it might not work out and that's okay. But I do think that you have to structure and position things in a way that makes sense. One, not only just to protect you and to protect the company down the line, right? Because a partnership with anybody or with the founder, a co-founder that looks like you're giving up equity, it's not just about the equity that you're going to lose down the line, but it's also about the equity that your future employees who might be just as dedicated to the company or even more dedicated might lose down the line as well. Um, and that's why, and I know people and uh, accelerators and Y Combinators of the world are, um, they try to uh, not tell founders to do this, but I think it's okay in a way to be a solo founder for a while. What I've learned in banking and getting to see cap tables is that uh, while there's a perception of co-founders, people will be very shocked to see that the cap tables aren't 50-50, right? So people bring co-founders six months or 12 months or 18 months in down the line. And that looks like a 65-35% split, right? That looks like 70 to 30% ownership. And that actually, to me, is more favorable for a variety of reasons. I think it makes the uh, matrix for making decisions very, very clear, Um, as well as, uh, as, as a startup, people are going to want to enter the more and more the startup is de risked And as you de-risk the startup, if you can bring someone on as a co-founder, 
that's phenomenal. But I also think that you should be protecting yourself and the company and not to say the co-founder isn't a part of the company, but in a way that makes sense. Um, and I think for so long, there was a perception of a co-founder as like a 50-50 split. Um, and it, it just doesn't totally make sense. So the two uh, entrepreneurs that I feel like have dealt with this really, really well is uh, Katrina Lake of Stitch Fix. Uh, she talks about this a little bit in her How I Built This episode. So she originally had a co-founder um, for, for Stitch Fix when it started, um, as well as uh, Jennifer Hyman. I think people don't talk enough about Jen and Jenny. Um, and they both met first day of HBS together. Jen is still the CEO of um, Rent the Runway, of course, and Jenny went on to uh, stayed with the company for a few years and then went on to help Walmart build like their DTC accelerator. Um, and I, I, I think that they're really great people to, to explore from. I mean, you look, you see co-CEOs such as the uh, Warby Parker co-CEOs, and I think that's a really, really unique situation. But what I'll say out of all of them, regardless of whether it took them starting with co-founders and then they're clearly being a CEO <laughs> from the beginning, um, people just riding it out as solo founders or the co-CEO model is that I think the co-CEO model is an anomaly and that the rest, there's always still a very clear leader. I mean, even look at Facebook, look at, look at all these companies, like there's always gonna be the visionary, there's always gonna be someone driving it. And I don't think that uh, there can't be multiple but I think then you're really assessing for passion and you need to do so in a way that not only continues to protect yourself, but the company for people down the future who you want to join as well. The worst, go ahead, Jermaine. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt you. I just wanted to yeah. raise my hand for next. But uh, so I have a question. I, I, I watched a lot of uh, TED Talks um, and I, uh, I, I one particularly I liked was the CEO. I don't know if he still is of Zappos. And I think, I think yeah. everyone has watched that one. Um, and uh, so... Um, in your in your traveling around and sort of assessing people's ideas, you know, some sort of in the you know sort of the tech phase, and some might not be in the tech phase. Um, what are your thoughts about you know as we go in to look for for ventures and look for partners and look for people interested in what we're doing? How much should we take into account sort of the West Coast kind of sort of um, techie sort of um, in at the moment or in the moment kind of thing versus folks who might, you know, want to use some of their experience mm -hmm. in, let's say, a long industry that is established mm -hmm. and to bring that into their, you know, their current ideas and sort of have, have some kind of, not necessarily groundbreaking, but in a way, an existing idea they want to build, right? Yeah. I know they're yeah. looking towards sort of this idea of everything has to be sort of innovative in the sense that it's never been done before. It's never been heard of yeah. before. It's, you know, what are your thoughts traveling around and seeing all Yeah, that? yeah. So I think it's, there's pros and cons to both. But ultimately, I would think about assessing for what I would call like startup quotient, right? Because the thing about uh, really senior people or, you know, people with a lot of domain expertise is they've had a lot of affordances during that time, right? That's why sometimes the really senior people, senior person that's head of retail at Apple can't transition to the head of retail at Glossier because working in a startup is different. I mean, I'm going through that, right? I, SVB, publicly traded bank, 
over 53 billion in assets and I mean, $131 million at Grasshopper is great, but it's very different. Um, the resources that you have access to, the way you can spend money, it's all very different. And so before you engage in a partnership with, uh, with people that have had those resources at their disposal, I would truly attempt to evaluate as much as you can if they will be able to still um, deliver without as many of those resources at their disposal in the timeline that you need. You need people that are going to move fast. You need partners that are going to move fast and you need them to be, um, you need them to keep you top of mind and priority, whatever that partnership or agreement might look like. Um, and this is something that, and it really actually does kind of bother me because I, I do think it's not fair, but a lot of big companies hurt startups this way, right? I talk to startups every day that have the pending partnership with insert fortune 100 fortune 500 company but that's not top of mind to that company right so even with everything going on you can bet maybe 50 70 percent of those partnerships are just in limbo and that's not going to be top of mind and so that also becomes a factor when it comes time for payment um, and so when you make a partnership when you sell to a really big company Sometimes the terms on invoice factoring is net, I mean, net 30 would be generous. It's net 90, it's net 120. Um, it's taking you so long to get your money and your hands are tied. Um, and then it also kind of, I think, invokes eventually a sunken cost fallacy, right? Because you want to do everything to service what you anticipate or what the perception is as your biggest customer, but you also really, really need to, uh, leverage some of that time and energy to hedge your bets. If you, and this actually becomes a really big thing when you fundraise, if any of you guys are selling B2B, really take this seriously. They look at uh, two things when they're observing your revenue. So one, of course, to have revenue is really great, but they're gonna evaluate what the um, diversity of your customers look like. Uh, so if I have $100,000, I'm doing $100,000 in MRR, and $90,000 of that is coming from one company that's really concerning as a bank or even as an equity investor to give money to because so much is contingent on your relationship with one company. Um, and then they're also evaluating uh, beyond that. If I have a 12 month relationship with my $90,000 a month customer, are they continuing to not only stay on and their lifetime value increasing, but are they, as you're introducing more products or more features, growing uh, the amount they spend with your company? So if you have a big company that starts uh, doing 25K MRR with you, and then by the end of the year doing 150K, that's really exciting. Um, but it, it can be a really big thing if you don't have uh, variability in your customer base, not just on the, I mean, the bank probably wouldn't lend to you, but even on the investor side, because uh, there's so much uh, variable uh, that's really only consist based on your relationship. And if that person that's running that contract leaves or a host of other things, your business is then instantly shuttered. Um, so I'd say, I think about all those things uh, as you diversify your time and your assets. And I think that smaller companies or companies that work with startups are more willing to um, they, like they know there's hiccups, right? Uh, versus a big company who might say they just, they can't. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. Um, so I know hey, that, um, go ahead. 
had a question. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so, uh, and hi, Denise. I'm Greg Coverdale. Thanks for joining us. Um, my question is, uh, with co-founders and venture capitalists, mm -hmm. do venture capitalists, in, in your experience, yeah. do venture capitalists look more favorably upon um, companies that have co-founders? And then also, um, you know, I think you mentioned dilution of the company. Mm -hmm. Like how much of the company do they want to see available? Because obviously they're yeah. their piece of it. Yeah. So I'd say that uh, co-founder or VCs evaluate co-founder relationships um, in a few ways, but there's probably two that are most important. If it's the earlier stages, it's uh, say like pre-seed to seed and maybe series A, they're more so trying to evaluate your ability to work with your co-founder to get through what are inevitably going to be tough times together with as least friction as possible. So they're looking at past evidence that could de-risk the um, possibility of increased friction during really, really tough times. Um, and so that looks like most times evidence of that being de-risked is uh, a prior working relationship. Um, and so uh, like, oh, we used to work together. So even if I used to work with my old co-founders, I work, I built a company with someone at SVB. The best way to actually highlight to that, that to investors would be, we worked together for five years and during that time we worked on X, Y, Z together. Um, they, the friction uh, is a risk to them, which is ultimately a risk to the LPs and they have a fiduciary duty to try and de-risk as much of that as possible. Um, so that's, that's a huge, huge thing. Um, and then remind me of the second part of your question. So the, the second part of my question was, I'm pretty sure you mentioned dilution. Of yeah. Companies. So, you know, um, if you have two co-founders and one of the co-founders has X percentage, the other has another percentage, like, like how, what's attractive to a, a VC? Like yeah. What, like what kind of percentage do they want to see that's available? Because they're obviously going to yeah. want their share of it. Yeah, that, that's a really great question. So, uh, I guess I tackle this in two ways, uh, playing devil's advocate for the VC, but also for the founders. So VCs are always hyper aware when it comes to dilution of making sure that the founder or founders are properly incentivized to make them not want to leave the business, right? Because they can take all this dilution and take all this equity. But then if you, Greg, are like, you know what? I don't even have enough ownership in this company. This X company is offering me a senior position. like. Might as well. Um, so the, I think they're definitely um, they're, they're definitely conscientious of that. I, I will say though that uh, given where the markets are, so what we typically see is uh, the earlier the round, the more expensive the capital is. And I think we're all on the same page when we agree that equity is the most expensive form of capital that you can use to grow your business. Um, and so at the earliest stages, the risk is higher, so it'll be higher. So pre-seed looks like somewhere from 10 to 25% is what we're seeing. Um, and what I found is by about series C or series D, that the CEO or the founder of the company owns about 12%. Um, that's probably a good outcome to show how that that changes over time. Now, there's a host of things that 
a founder can do to kind of alleviate some of that. Um, and that looks like products like venture debt, uh, that looks like impacting or not impacting, but you know, growing slower. Um, it, it, it does look like a host of a host of things. But what I will say is that pre-seed and seed round is really, really expensive capital. And that's why I really do believe that founders should, especially when they're working with potential partners or co-founders, best that equity out. Um, hedge your bets because I'd rather best uh, equity out over four years with a co-founder well, four years might be long, but two years have a co-founder that leaves after a year and be able to take the options that they didn't exercise back into an option pool for employees who will feel just as vested in the company moving forward. Um, so I, the same way that investors would in the company to keep growing, I would think about also sure that employees down the line will be incentivized as well. Um, but I will say that well, we, we see it's here or there, but investors like to think they're more founder friendly. And I think that um, that that plays out in terms, but there's also, or there was pending current current situation. There was a lot of mar uh, money in the markets um, and they were aware that founders and companies had access to supplies of capital and not only really great interest rates, but didn't also need to take equity risk. So I think that all, um, can be used to a founder's advantage. Can you hear me? Can you yeah, hear me okay? I can hear you. <laughs> okay, great. So that uh, that twelve percent that you mentioned, yeah. Say for instance, say for instance, you bring on a co-founder. Is I, I imagine that that twelve percent is is encompasses the other co-founder as well. That's a total number. Okay. Yeah. So they, I mean, it's, di it's different for every company, but what, what I will say is um, this is also another great place where a bank or a partner can play. Um, and this is where your law firm is going to be really, really important because part of the benefit of using a law firm that's doing a lot of these deals is they can tell you what's market. Hi, Denisha. Hi. Uh, it's Jimmy's here, and sorry, I'm walking. Hopefully, everyone can hear me okay. No, no, you're good. Uh, I don't know if you remember meeting me at the Harlem Capitol Holiday yes. Celebration. Yeah. yeah, I was a former intern. I'm in California now doing UX research at Google, and then awesome. also trying to work on this early stage startup I love um, it. situation. So, I'm glad to hear that you loved your early stage startup days because um, that's kind of like what I have questions about with yeah. where I am right now. And then also wanted to kind of share a quick pitch. But when I think about the problem I'm trying to solve and all the secondary research reports that exist, yeah. I think my biggest challenge is going from like research reports to actionable steps or like yeah going from like a list of problems to like yeah. here's a problem i'm gonna solve so um i can kind of share with you what problems i'm thinking and yeah. then you can let me know your thoughts yeah that sounds good that okay sounds so good. in the like fintech realm or 401k specifically i've highlighted problems such as um individuals having difficulty understanding like what the 401k benefit is whether yeah. or not they're uh, optimizing, saving enough, investing enough, and then employees face the challenge of like lower productivity 
among their employees when they face that financial strain. Um, As of right now, I haven't um, done research to find out if companies are incentivized to do anything about that, like if people aren't saving for retirement, if there's Mm -hmm. anyone like being held accountable for it to basically answer the question, is this a problem that matters to to anyone? Yeah, yeah, I I think so. Um, A book I've become obsessed with is uh, Disciplined Entrepreneurship by Bill Allett. So Bill's a professor at MIT, teaches entrepreneurship, um, and he basically walks through 24 steps around uh, a disciplined framework to building a company. Um, And some of that is initial value prop analysis. Um, And so I think you're thinking about it in in the right way Um, because the right constituent might not actually be companies, right? I mean, at this point, companies are trying to hedge their bets. Um, So I I would say that I think about it from evaluating all the problem statements and then who that key person is and why they may or may not want to do it. So I think a lot about, I mean, just being young and working at different companies now before people had pensions, right? So I feel like it's largely up to me as an individual to protect my bets for what my retirement plan looks like or what my savings look like down the line. So and when you think about um, tech companies uh, who a lot of their employees have ownership to what you would consider very volatile and risky stocks as part of their compensation plan, they might have the liquidity as well as the money to uh, to do that, right? Um, and so uh, I'd recommend Disciplined Entrepreneurship by, by Bill and I'd walk through through the steps to think through it. And then I'd really just talk to people and I'm happy to, to the extent that there's people in my network who can speak on this. I would talk through um, potential, like potential value props, potential problem statements. And just because a company has a specific problem statement doesn't mean that they're incentivized to solve it. So the best example I can think of is Uber, right? They have the problem statement of 1099 workers, but they're not incentivized to actually change their 1099 worker structure because it gives them the margins that they need for their business to keep growing in a way that helped keep Uber one of the most profitable private companies, or not most profitable, but most valued uh, private company at the time. And so um, I, I would assess my problem statements, but then I would, uh, I would focus after that on making sure the problem statements correlate with the value proposition in a way that the people who would be paying for it are incentivized to actually pay for it. Because some people might just say, honestly, like we are aware, but it is what it is. <laughs> Got it. That's helpful. I'll definitely um, look into that because I think just the way you explained it, it's like two planes. The one plane is like the problem, but then the other plane is the value prop. And then you have to like find a match along both planes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I do that, but also from the users, like who are the people that are going to use in some like if you're building like a product for kids, you're selling to the parents, right? But you still need to make it great for the kids. So, so there's going to be, just given the nature of what you're building, multiple value holders in this, and then assessing which value holders have the biggest stake in incentivizing them to do it. And then if the value holders actually correlate with the people that will pay for the product. Um, gotcha. 
So yeah. more like a triangulation. Which it, it gets like kind of complicated and it is a little bit complicated, but then it makes sense. And the reason is because you can still have the same product. You'll just uh, position it differently to the people that will benefit from it. And so generally speaking, is this an exercise that like all entrepreneurs, like the founder of Uber would have gone through, the founder of Airbnb would have gone through? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think maybe they didn't do it, but they quickly realized that they had to, right? Or they iterate on that in real time. And then those decisions ultimately come with, um, they, ult they ultimately come with consequences, right? So it's why Tusk Ventures exists today and Uber had to have a lawyer on standby and give that lawyer equity because they knew that they were going to um, go into cities they had no jurisdiction in and break 1099 laws and do all these things. Um, but that was the decision they made for the company. And that's probably why Uber grew at a rate that Lyft did it. But that was a chance that they were willing to take. So you might do that and still, uh, still follow the path that you're going to follow. But I think you, it makes you a lot more conscientious of what might come up as a result of that. Got it. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Denisha, could you speak uh, briefly about regulatory and compliance? Yeah, so regulatory is tough only in the sense that it's really hard for, for early stage companies. Um, so I'll speak about it a little bit from banking uh, and just use Grasshopper as an example. So uh, what we did, uh, what, what you'd see for a lot of new banks in the space, when you think of the Mercury's of the world, or the Rose, um, they partner right with other banks because the process of getting a banking license is very hard, it's very complex, and it's very capital intensive. Um, and so Evolve Banking Trust is actually the bank that's made a lot of really great money um, from partnering with uh, fintech companies. And so how I would think about it is you kind of have two options. Um, you can raise capital, uh, which honestly will probably only work if you're like a really pedigree founder um, for a business that's regulatory heavy, or you can do partnerships. Um, Sorry, one second. Hold on, let's see. Is my audio working okay for everyone? Yes, okay. it is. Yeah. Hold on one second. All right, Denisha, I'm going to, I muted you real quick. Let's see if that fixed it. Is it better now? No. No, it sounds, for some reason now it's all like, kind of like muffled and robotic <laughs> a little bit. Let's see. Is it better now? Yes. It is okay. I I'm, I've got something. <laughs> All right, we're good. We're back. Um. So essentially, we were talking. I was talking about uh, regulatory before and leveraging regulatory for your business. I will say that's when when you think about some venture firms, it could be interesting. So Tusk Ventures is the most popular one. He was the uh, lawyer for Uber in the early days and helped them get through regulatory hurdles and then started a venture firm. And that's basically their value add. They work with companies uh, in which their regulatory expertise can be a large benefit. Um, and that's also probably the case for taking corporate venture money. Um, if they will give you access or leverage to their counsel 
um, as a result of them having an equity in your business that could save you significant lawyer costs. Um, we spend a lot of money on <laughs> making sure our, we're audit prepared and a whole host of other things. Um, meanwhile, I was talking to the folks at Hearst Ventures and they were explaining to me that part of the benefit of being with Hearst Ventures is that their lawyers look over contracts for startups, right, which save them a significant amount of money. So I guess I would think about it as what is your path to least resistance? Um, and that path might change. We've seen companies do partnerships so that they have less strife on the regulatory side and then end up pursuing a license or something down the line. But when you're a startup, I think you should at least in the beginning, pursue the path of least resistance so that when it comes time, you have you have leverage. Um, and then something I'll speak about, I guess, on the financial partnership side, because I saw this a lot at SVB, is that um, uh, basically we're, we were trying to de-risk, right, as a result of being a bank, uh, companies that we did partnerships with. And so that looked like, what are your terms of conditions? What are your terms of services? How buttoned up are you? Or what is the perception that you're buttoned up? And what is the perception that you're going to be able to catch a potential BSA uh, problem or a money, money laundering uh, that it's going to be caught by you before it gets to us and takes up our resources? Um, so that's also what we were always evaluating for. That is awesome. Super helpful. Thank you for that. Yeah. Does anybody, so has anyone who hasn't asked a question yet, would you like to ask the final question here? We want to be respectful of Denisha's time. I'll uh, let whoever wants to jump in and take it. All right. Uh, <laughs> anybody else want to ask a question? <laughs> Somebody who has asked a question already, Mr. Abu, would you like to give a quick pitch? I feel like you should give a quick 30 second pitch. Margie's gonna take the opportunity for me. Yeah, I am. Sorry, I had to, I had to move <laughs> okay. into my house. Um, so Denisha, you, earlier you spoke about uh, some of the KPIs that you look for. Yeah. Um, and it struck me as um, different than what I expected. So I know that in our series B round, mm -hmm. um, we went through a process of deciding which mm -hmm. KPIs we wanted to report. Yeah. Um, and so like, how do you, how would you advise us to think about selecting the KPIs that we care yeah. about when we get to this point and balancing yeah. the ones that we know people will look for? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that requires more explanation for anybody. No, it actually, but. so there's this great, and I'll try and connect to you, Gary, because he should probably teach a session. Um, but it's Traction Science by Harlan Milko. Um, and he talks about just that, right? And has built a whole company off just that. I mean, you look at, I personally consider it smoke and mirrors, but you look at tech and startups and what people are building and the metrics that they refer to are, in my opinion, smoke and mirrors. It's not the app downloads, like th those sometimes those aren't things that are actually indicative of the success of the business. Um, and that becomes uh, two things. Uh, one, those are great questions to ask an investor 
-hmm. one, to see how they're thinking about your business and what they would be focused on to want to see investment down the line. And then two, like you said, I think setting those KPIs for yourself, because uh, when I talk to founders and when we have this conversation, sometimes it's less about what specific KPIs they're choosing and why they decided to choose them. Um, if I have a founder that's like, actually app downloads are indicative of this or they represent this, that's really interesting to me. Uh, I think it's about being thoughtful around what they represent and how you'll be able to use what they represent or the knowledge that you derive from those KPI mm -hmm. or from that specific KPI into influencing the strategy of your business. Mm -hmm. um, and so Traction Science creates a really great case for this. Um, and so, the, yeah, they're the ones that, uh, his name's Harlan, um, we did a workshop and he's just phenomenal. That That's the one I would go back to because like I said, it's less about, I mean, there's all the standard ones, customer acquisition, blah, blah, blah. But it, why, why does that matter? Um, if you don't have a repeatable business, maybe lifetime value is less as important, but what's more important is making sure customer acquisition cost is low because you don't have a long lifetime with that customer. Um, I think it, like you said, it's choosing those metrics and being confident about why those metrics are going to be the thing that give you the best understanding of your business and the strategy of your business. And if you do that right, when you communicate to the investor, why those are the metrics, it makes them more thoughtful mm -hmm. as well as how the, to how they're evaluating your company. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much, Denisha. Yeah. Um, is there yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to share my email. Um, as we all do, I have a ton of time uh, to hop on video calls and learn more about people's businesses and be helpful however I can. Um, I'm a founder at heart. And so I love people that are building things and that are passionate about building things. And so I'm always happy to get on the phone or do a video call um, and see what you guys are building. And if there's honestly, like add me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, whatever, if there's anything I can do to be helpful, like, please let me know. Always happy to do it. That is so awesome. Thank you so much again. And I will definitely, I will follow up with you because we need to get a bit creative for, for our demo day now for, for yeah. early May. Yeah. So something virtual probably, but yeah, we'd yeah. love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Well, stay safe, everyone. Um, I know we will all be back in three months post <laughs> this, maybe in person, but it was great chatting with all of you. And like I said, please follow up if there's anything I can do. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Awesome. Bye, everyone.